This is Guns and Butter. There are death squads. There are terrorist commandos that have been brought in by the world specialist in death squads and terrorist commandos. That is the CIA and NATO intelligence. Think of what you know about Argentina. Think of what you know about uh, Central America. Death squads, right? Escadrones de la Muerte and, and so forth. This is, what, this is what's actually happening. And when you, when you get these uh, accounts, right, from Al Jazeera or any number of other authorities about children being killed or how many people got killed, ask yourself who's doing the killing. Uh, and it turns out that in a very large number of these cases, it's these snipers. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. Today on Guns and Butter, Webster Tarpley. Today's show, NATO's assault on Syria. Webster Tarpley is an economic historian, author, and lecturer. He is author of Against Oligarchy, Surviving the Cataclysm, A Study of the World Financial Crisis, 9-11 Synthetic Terror, Made in the USA, and co-author of George Bush, The Unauthorized Biography. His latest books are Obama, The Postmodern Coup, The Making of a Manchurian Candidate, and Obama, The Unauthorized Biography. On today's program, Dr. Tarpley gives an eyewitness account of his recent trip to Syria with a group of foreign journalists. He describes the cities he visited, the Syrian people he met, his travels around the country, events he experienced, and his analysis of what is currently happening in that country. Webster Tarpley, welcome. Thank you so much. Glad to be with you. You've recently traveled to the country of Syria with a group of foreign journalists. How was the group invited, and when were you there, and how did you enter the country? Well, this was a group of um, uh, journalists. We had people from Spain, from Italy, from Belgium, from, uh, let's see, uh, France, of course, uh, and the United States. So it was an international group. Uh, some of them were Catholic journalists from more or less mainstream publications in Belgium, such as La Libre Belgique, which is uh, sort of a Catholic-oriented, uh, or at least this particular writer was. And the group was invited by the Greek Melkite Catholic Church of, uh, of Syria, and that is a group, that is the Melkites. They are the uh, Byzantine or Greek rite, but they are uh, oriented towards the, uh, the, the Pope in Rome. So they have essentially been united with the Vatican for the past 200 or so uh, years. And in particular, the invitation came from Sister Agnès Mariam de la Croix, uh, who is the mother superior of the monastery or, or uh, uh, nunnery of St. James the Mutilated of Kara, K-A-R-A, in Syria. And this is a saint, it's not St. James the Apostle, but it's a St. James coming out of uh, what is today Iran and, uh, and then becoming a martyr at this point in, um, in Syria. This monastery is located about halfway between Damascus and, uh, and Homs. 
So it was essentially sponsored by uh, by this religious group, by by a Christian church in Syria, and it's not a, a coincidence because the Christian churches are very much afraid of what's going to happen. If the uh, Assad government is overthrown, they feel that they're going to be subjected to a rather benighted Islamist, Salafist uh, regime, and they've seen that happen in, in Iraq. Uh, about a million Christians have fled from Iraq over the past uh, years. These are mainly Chaldeans, and they've taken refuge in Syria. So it's interesting, if Syria is so bad, and if, if uh, these Christians are looking around for a place to go, why would they go to Syria when they could just as easily go someplace else, to Turkey or, or someplace like this? And the idea is that Syria has been probably the most tolerant and the most cosmopolitan, in a good way, uh, society in the Middle East. It's about 15% Christian. Uh, they have uh, Sunni Muslims. They have Alawite or quasi-Shiite Muslims. That's the Assad family and, and significant parts of the government. But they also have Greek Orthodox. They have these Greek Melkites. And they also have their own indigenous Syriac uh, church, also to some degree allied with the Vatican, or some of them, I guess the majority. But there are also other other groups. There are Zoroastrians and all kinds of other religious uh, groups, which are tolerated. They have complete religious liberty under the Assad family. So now, how did you arrive? Did you fly in? Sure, and this is an important difference. Uh, I was in, um, in um, Libya in the summer, and of course with Libya there was already a, a no-fly zone, so you had, in that case you had to fly to Tunisia, then down to the south of Tunisia, and then drive in a car from the Tunisian border to, to Tripoli, at least where I was going. And in that case you found a checkpoint every two or three miles, because that country was in the midst of, of a NATO-created civil war, uh, and you could, you could basically see it, that there were, there were checkpoints uh, all over the place. The difference with Syria, and I would stress this at the beginning, is there is no civil war in, in at least 95% of Syria. There's nothing like a civil war. You come into the Damascus International Airport, there's no particular militarization that I could see, no, no tanks parked around, no you know, heavy armed uh, troops. Uh, probably the the airport I left here, right, uh, Dulles Airport here in Washington, was more militarized than the one that I found in in Syria. And then when you drive downtown to Damascus, no military checkpoints. You drive from Damascus to Kara, that's uh, about two hours. No checkpoints. You drive another hour or hour and a half to Homs. Maybe one or two checkpoints in the outskirts of Homs because that's a hot spot. But then you drive on to Tartus on the Mediterranean, where the Russian fleet is based, and then up to Banias, also on the Mediterranean, no checkpoints. And in the entire time, there were two incidents where we saw uh, military vehicles. One was an empty tank transporter, between, I think between uh, Homs and, uh, and Damascus, uh, going nowhere in particular that we could see. And then um, as we were going from Kara to Beirut, because we spent a day or two in Beirut, we passed about 20 uh, uh, trucks of the Syrian army with probably 25 troops each, or maybe five or 600 troops, uh, and that was it. So it's not a civil war in the sense that the media are, are trying to make you believe. There, there is no part of Syria which is occupied and held and controlled by rebel forces. There is no front. Uh, rather, it's a kind of sporadic violence that I'll, I'll try to describe. Well, could you describe... Uh, well, I guess the first city 
that you visited was Damascus. Now, did you leave sure. right away and go to Homs? Yeah, I basically spent one one night in Damascus, and it would come into Damascus uh, on on the uh, you know in the evening of uh, it was Monday, November fourteenth. So I was basically there for more or less the week before the American Thanksgiving. So into into uh, Damascus, beautiful place. It's probably the oldest continuously inhabited city on planet Earth. At least that is what the uh, the inhabitants will tell you. It is the home of the oldest alphabet in the world, according to Syrian scholars. This is the Ugarit uh, alphabet. Uh, as distinct, you know, Chinese pictographs are are older, but this is an alphabet, right? This is something that has something to do with with phonetics. Um, beautiful place. Um, I would highly recommend it. It's, you know, five or six million people. And the life you saw there was absolutely normal. There was nothing out of the ordinary, uh, not even, you know, gas lines or any of the things you might have seen in Tripoli. So what I'm trying to say is I know what a civil war looks like in a modern Arab country, and this is not a, a civil war based on, on the obvious comparison with, with Libya. But then uh, the following day, which was Tuesday, the 15th of November, we were given a chance to go to Homs. And this was the obvious place to go because all of the Western media reports from Al Jazeera, France 24, the BBC, CNN, uh, MSNBC, and all the, the American uh, networks and the Voice of America and all the rest of them, they had told us Homs is the center of the revolt. And you still hear that, right? The rebellious city of Homs. So we wanted to go there and see uh, what we found. Now, we were basically free to go where we wanted. There was no official of the um, secret police, the Mukhabarat. There was no supervision of that type. So I was there with this this group. Uh, probably the most famous person in the group uh, is Thierry Maison of France, the, the leader of the Voltaire Network. He's a, a kind of internationally known uh, anti-imperialist and uh, they organized the Axis of Peace conference in uh, in Brussels back in uh, in 2005. So we went on to Homs and stopped off at the uh, governor's uh, residence, right? The governor of the province, and the governor essentially had a gathering of um, local representatives. He had the Greek Orthodox Metropolitan. He had the Greek Melkite Bishop. He had the Greek Syriac uh, Bishop but also a couple of representatives of civil society who were quite interesting. The line of the governor was that the rebellion in Homs was carried out by indigenous Syrian criminal elements, that that was the people who were doing the, uh, the rebellion, the shooting, the killing. He was immediately contradicted by a man who was there who was introduced to us as a well-known scholar and uh, journalist and actually uh, a published poet, who said, I'm sorry, Your Excellency uh, Governor here, this is absolutely inadequate. We're undergoing a CIA destabilization, and the people who are doing the shooting are at least, uh, to a significant degree, foreign fighters that have been brought in. So this was interesting to hear the governor contradicted that he was being too soft. There was also a woman from the upper middle class, I would guess, who uh, essentially said that she was part of a I guess you could call it a loyal opposition, that she was there not as a member of the Ba'ath Party, and indeed both of these two representatives were, they were not in the Ba'ath Party and they were not happy with the Ba'ath Party at all. 
and they wanted uh, they wanted changes. And the woman in particular said she just wanted the ability to organize politically. She wanted to have meetings. She wanted to publish what she wanted, and so forth. And I think this was this was fine. I think this is exactly what you would need. But in order to do this, she was not going out, you know, uh, and, and shooting people from rooftops. She was essentially engaging this governor in a dialogue, and and they were contradicting him directly to his face in front of this fairly significant group of you know about a dozen. Uh, foreign journalists. Uh, I tried to warn her essentially that for Hillary Clinton, she was simply a a tool. In other words, she would be mercilessly exploited as a as a you know a means of trying to introduce bombing and civil war on the Libyan model. And then she, of course, said, and she had stressed in her presentation, I don't want any foreign armies in this country. I don't want any bombing. I don't want any no-fly zone. So this was a very interesting uh, meeting. And, of course, the, the three Christian representatives, the Greek Orthodox, the Melkite, and the Syriac, they were all in favor of negotiation uh, and, and an end to the, to the fighting. All right, so that was the official version plus the, the loyal opposition version. But then we went on and we drove to what had been reported to be the hottest neighborhood in this hottest uh, town in the country. And this is a neighborhood called Zara, Z-A-H-R-A, is how it usually turns up. Uh, and this was a moment, I must say, of some tension, because you're driving into, into Homs, that the dusk is beginning to fall. It's very cold, uh, because you're, you're significantly up in, in a plateau. And uh, we're looking for the opposition. We're looking for anti-Assad the demonstrations or, or any, any other kind of demonstrations we could find. So we drive around, the streets seem to be empty, and we're told then that we're going to come upon a demonstration because the people, uh, uh, the, the, uh, the driver of this bus is on the phone with different people and he's conferring with Maison and others. Where do we, where do we find some, some political uh, activity? So we come across a demonstration of about four to 500 people in a, in a public square, in a kind of a... a semi-decent uh, neighborhood, kind of run down, but, but not the poorest either, not a slum by any means, a kind of a, I guess, what would pass for a middle-class neighborhood. So with some trepidation, we get down from the bus. What's it going to be? Is it going to be, uh, you know, extreme people? Are they Salafists? Do they hate Westerners? And in fact, no, they're delighted to see us because, in fact, we are the first group of Western journalists in Tahams. And let me just say this again. If you get any report, any report you find that's dated before Tuesday the 15th of November, talking about uh, what's going on in Homs, this is done by somebody who was not in Homs, if it, if it was a Western uh, news service. This was the first group on the 15th of November that got into Homs, and I was part of it. So we go up to these people, four to 500, and what we see is, first of all, they have these large plastic containers, like the kind of thing you'd use to put gasoline in, but, but probably, you know, four or five times as big. And they've got hundreds of these lined up in the streets. There are hundreds of containers, and their demand is they want fuel oil. They want mazout, as it's called, I guess, in Arabic. Mazout. Mazout is the issue. They want to be able to heat their homes because it's already quite cold, and it's going to get a whole lot colder. And uh, they blamed the governor for not providing enough mazout. He hasn't been active enough on the mazout front. But, of course, 
when you think about it, this is really due more to economic sanctions than anything else. In other words, this is it's it certainly the governor could could do more, but at the same time, the lack of mazout I think is more more due to the uh, the intervention of the U.S., uh, NATO, and the Arab League. And then we begin to ask them after this, what's your political orientation? They they then pull out these um, portraits of of uh, Bashar Assad, right, the president. And and you can it's interesting to see that these are not the carefully printed, good looking signs that the government gives people in Damascus when they organize a uh, a demonstration, but these are just pages from old magazines and stuff. And they pull those out and they start showing those. I have some photographs that I'll put on the internet now um, before the end of the year. And they're they're sh- they're showing these that they're pro Assad. So this was I think a complete surprise. They basically say we want more fuel oil. And we support Assad. I'm speaking with economic historian and author Webster Tarpley. Today's show, NATO's assault on Syria. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Now we then proceed to the hospital of this neighborhood. So now we're at the epicenter of whatever's going on in Syria, because we're in the hottest city, in the hottest neighborhood, and we're at the point where all the human carnage will come together, the neighborhood hospital that serves the several hundred thousand people in Homs, which is, a, I guess, a couple of million altogether. So we're now in the Zara Hospital. And what do we find here? We find, first of all, that there are women doctors, uh, a woman anesthesiologist is one of the most eloquent uh, people we find, a man who's a teacher of English, and a couple of people, nurses, men and women working as nurses, and uh, significant numbers of them know some, some English. So we begin to ask them, what's, what's the situation here in Zara? And they said, well, today we had five dead and seven wounded. And is that a normal day? And they say, yes, that's, that's about what it's like. Uh, we've had peaks of 80 combined, 80 uh, killed and wounded on certain days, but generally it's in this area of uh, 10 to 20 killed and wounded. All right, who's doing the killing? And they say... These are snipers who operate from the roofs of the houses. They go up on the roofs of the, of the apartment houses and other buildings in this neighborhood of Zara, and they shoot people in the streets. Who are they? Well, dressed in black, wearing black hoods. Who are they? Um, they say, uh, some of them say, these are foreign fighters, some of them say they're Syrians. Some of them say they're, they're foreign fighters. Uh, when do they attack? They shoot at 9 o'clock in the morning when parents are delivering their kids to school. And they showed us some pictures of uh, children, right, school kids, who had been hit by snipers' bullets riding around in the, uh, in the cars of their parents, but also others who had been uh, killed. So 9 o'clock in the morning... When the school starts, three o'clock in the afternoon when the school ends, and then eleven o'clock at night when people go home from the cafe, right, where they sit around with these hookahs and um, the water pipes, right, the Arab water pipe, and then and then also uh, coffee and, and and things like this. So we talked to this woman anesthesiologist, and she confirmed this entire story, and she said, "Now, unfortunately, I have to go home now." And we asked her, well, what, what, you know, how far do you have to go? And she said, well, I have to drive over here. But her main problem in life is she doesn't want to be shot and killed from a sniper operating from a rooftop. 
all right, what do you people want to happen? In other words, according to you, what is the solution to this? And they, they say, we want the Syrian army to come into our neighborhood. We want the Syrian army to take up permanent positions on the roofs of all these houses and stop the snipers from killing us. That's their demand. They don't want the snipers killing them and shooting them. Now, let me just interject. My analysis of this is, I think it's quite clear. There are death squads. There are terrorist commandos that have been brought in by the world specialist in death squads and terrorist commandos. That is the CIA and NATO intelligence. Think of what you know about Argentina. Think of what you know about uh, Central America. Death squads, right? Escadrones de la Muerte and, and so forth. This is, what, this is what's actually happening. And when you, when you get these uh, accounts, right, from Al Jazeera or any number of other authorities about children being killed or how many people got killed, ask yourself, who's doing the killing? Uh, and it turns out that in a very large number of these cases, it's these snipers. And the, the, the interesting thing was that their criticism of Assad was not that he was a tyrant or that he did too much, but that he was too soft, that he was too concerned about international public opinion. He was too concerned about uh, having you know, people abroad think that he was uh, cracking down. Uh, these people were, were basically begging for a crackdown. They said, where's the Syrian army? And indeed, when you drive in, you think, well, if it's really a hot neighborhood, there'd be a tank at every corner, there'd be troops in the streets. No, there was not uh, this stuff. Now, it, it turns out that Homs is an area quite near the Lebanese border, and this has its own uh, story. But let me just get on to another one. That um, after visiting the hospital, we then went on to visit the home of a, of a guy who got killed because they, they invited us, right? The people, the, the local people said, here, you have to go and talk to this family. And this guy was a taxi driver. Now, now we get into the ethnic stuff. Uh, that He's an Alawite taxi driver, or was, he was in his 20s, and he was kidnapped and murdered by a group of these terrorists. So we got to visit his, his family, and the family were Assad supporters. They had uh, pictures of Assad, Hafez, and the current president in their homes. I would just say the difference between the Latin American death squad and the Syrian death squad, as far as I can see, is the following. The Latin American death squad was very carefully targeted. In other words, it was kidnapping and murder, and it was if you were a communist or if you were a trade unionist, then you were a prime target. But in the case of Syria, it's just killing. Um, they told us men, women, children. You could be a Sunni. You could be a Shiite. You could be an Alawite. You could be a Christian. You could be a Druze. You could be a Kurd. Uh, this didn't matter. So in other words, it's not the targeted you know, knock on the door in the dead of night, and then you're kidnapped and you disappear. It's more, you're walking along the street at 3 o'clock in the afternoon, and you get killed by a sniper. So this, I think, is, is the reality of, uh, of Homs. Well, now, death squads were taken into Iraq as well. Yeah, well, that's the other thing. The, the, uh, the Grand Mufti of Damascus, a very interesting person, I would say one of the great religious leaders of our times, based on his, his practice. This is a, a man whose son was murdered by Sunni extremists, as he said, whom he has forgiven, and he's trying to promote dialogue, reconciliation. In other words, it's a, it's a very Iranic 
conciliatory agenda by Dr. Hassouni, the um, the Grand Mufti of Damascus. He said that some of the killers are from Chechenia. I imagine some of them are from Dagestan, but um, they've essentially begun to recycle the the killers and terrorists who were active in Libya during the summer, the Al-Qaeda and Salafists and Muslim Brotherhood types who have been there. They've been recycled back into Syria. And similarly, a significant number of the um, the terrorists that were deployed really by the U.S. right to create the Sunni and, and Shiite civil wars, those have been redeployed into Syria from from nearby Iraq. You've also got uh, people from from other areas. Uh, the kinds of things that you see, right? I saw one one sample: this Homs and uh, and Mediterranean coast area. There are, of course, other areas. There's a place in the north called Edlib, and Edlib is right near the Turkish border. This is now the main theater of uh, of death squad operations. And I would say what they've done is they've united the death squads under one umbrella, and they've begun to call them the Free Syrian Army, and that's operating on the, along the Turkish border. So what you have there is really an international war of aggression waged by the Turks against Syria along the northern border. But you've also got uh, the border of Syria with Iraq, which happens to be the Kurdish sub-entity of Iraq. That's another hot spot. Then there's the city of Adara, I guess it is, which is along the Jordanian border. Uh, Jordan, I'm told, operates as a kind of a base for the U.S., the British, the French, and the Israelis. That seems to be what, what Jordan represents these days. But above all, Lebanon. Lebanon um, is, of course, the area where, where you can get to Homs, you can get to Tartus, you can get to Banyas, you can get to Hama, areas where there have been or currently are um, operations by, again, what I would call death squads. Uh, in Lebanon, the key guy seems to be Saad Hariri. He seems to be the kind of resident political operative of NATO and, and the United States and, and, and the, indeed of the Israelis. And he seems to be expediting the, the uh, arrival of these foreign fighters into Syria. So when you look at Syria, it's interesting to see that the, the activities of the death squads are concentrated in border areas. In other words, they don't reach into the interior. It's not something that starts in the capital and then spreads out, which, you know, You'd, you'd think would be normal, right? The capital would be more politicized, more people ready to demonstrate. No, it's always starting from the border areas and, and, and reaching in. Now, if I can, let me just go on and maybe illustrate. I have two other sort of um, case studies. One is the city of Banias. Now, this is on the Mediterranean, right? This is uh, in a sort of um, uh, somewhat north of the Lebanese border, right? Uh, where, the, where the Syrians begin to have their own Mediterranean coast. Now, what we did here, we spent an entire day with a, a selection of people, Sunnis, Alawites, Maronites, right, the Lebanese uh, Christians uh, living there. And essentially what we did was we reconstructed a massacre that had occurred in the city of Banyas around the middle of April, in the beginning of the of the destabilization of Syria. Now, let me just let me just... I preface that by saying, at the beginning, in March and April, there were political uh, demonstrations calling for reform. And there's nothing particularly strange about that, because this does go on. Um, Hafez Assad, I would say, qualified as a dictator. In other words, he had 
some pretty repressive things going on. But the transition from Hafez Assad, the father, to Bashar Assad, the son, is marked by a significant loosening of all these controls and uh, a significant uh, you know, reform agenda, at least in terms of you know, free speech and, and, and political rights. So demonstrations were not that, uh, not that unusual. The difference then was that once the demonstrations started, the death squads began to arrive, and the death squads began shooting the people in the demonstrations, because that was the goal. It's the, the death squads come in as a third force. They're not the Syrian army. They're not the political demonstrators, but they act as agent provocateur, shooting down the political demonstrators uh, as a means of ginning up this, this human rights uh, crisis, which otherwise does not exist. Right? It's, it's artificial, created from the outside. So what we found in Banyas was it was a, an army depot with uh, 110 troops, these were not combat troops, they were logistical troops. At a certain point, there's a, there's a superhighway that goes along near the Mediterranean coast. The, um, what can we call them? The terrorists, I guess I have to call them, coming in from Lebanon, destroyed a bunch of trucks and used those trucks to block the, uh, the, the highway. So at a certain point, then, the, uh, the order goes out, get those logistical troops to go and clear the highway so we can get our economic life going again. And this was about, you know, the 10th or so of, of April. Uh, as the 100 or so logistical troops and their vehicles begin to leave their base and cross a bridge on the northern side of Banyas, they come under fire from about two to 300 uh, shooters who managed to kill about 10 of the troops. Uh, 70 of them run away, 40 of them stay and fight, 10 get killed. And that's, that's the story of the, uh, of the event. I'm speaking with economic historian and author Webster Tarpley. Today's show, NATO's Assault on Syria. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. We also hear that the local mosque at 3 o'clock in the afternoon begins to put out a call to kill, which is, you know, not not in the Islamic uh, liturgy at all. There's no place for a call to kill. But this is similar to what happened in, in Tripoli, right, on the, in, on, I guess, on the 22nd of August, when, when key renegade mosques in Tripoli began putting out the call to overthrow Gaddafi, and that was time to coincide with the NATO landings of, uh, of al-Qaeda troops along the Along the along the seafront. So in this case, it's it's quite similar, and that that imam uh, has disappeared and gone into hiding. The guy who ran that mosque has disappeared. So, uh, according to the people who told me this, and I have to tell you, the, the the most cogent account of this came from a guy who was a sergeant in the Syrian army, and he was sitting on the floor telling me this story, telling us this story, with his two legs shot off. So he his his and he was always reaching down to scratch the stumps of what had been his legs. So this guy, in, in my book, was a man of some, some courage, and he told us this story. And then he said, the people who did this were inspired by Khadam. Now, Khadam is the former foreign minister of Syria for about 20 years, and he was also the, uh, he's the former vice president of Syria, too. And he was op- operating, he is operating from Paris as a, uh, a center of... Uh, of, of the destabilization, I think Kadam imagines that he will become the what the Jalil, I guess, the the new 
uh, boss of Syria, if the current government is overthrown, that NATO would install Qaddam as the most plausible uh, political uh, political person. So, again, we ask them, and again, we're talking to Maronite Christians, we're talking to Sunni Muslims, uh, and we're talking to Alawites, what should happen? And they said, we want a firmer line from Assad. We want, we want a, uh, a harder line against these people, because one of the things they said was, one of the reasons that the, uh, this massacre had occurred was that the, the Syrian army had received an order not to shoot back. Uh, the order was, I guess, the, the, the inspiration of the order was don't shoot at political demonstrations. But they then, when they were attacked by these two to three hundred shooters, they didn't have orders to respond. They rather had what they thought was an order not to respond. So uh, they didn't, uh, according to these to the reports, and this they were unanimous about this. Not one shot was fired by anybody of these logistical troops when they came under attack at the Banyas Bridge back in the middle of of April. So again, the same story. Uh, that the Assad regime is too soft, that the Assad regime needs to put an end to this. And then, let me just add the third one, was on the, on the um, Thursday, the 17th of November, visited the Damascus Military Hospital, and this was quite, quite an experience, to go and talk to wounded soldiers of the Syrian army. And these were 19, 20-year-old kids um, and I have to say, this is quite moving because uh, they've all been wounded. One of them was was out of it. He was just he was asleep. He was in a, maybe he was in a coma, but he was on some kind of a uh, you know a drip and uh, you know getting getting he was getting medication. His parents were there. They seemed to think he was going to make it. So maybe he was just just asleep. But the the general common denominator of about ten of these cases was we were on guard duty and then we came under attack either attack from a sniper or an attack from somebody who came up very close and then began shooting, right? Somebody who basically got close to you while you're on guard duty, guarding some building, and then began shooting at you. Uh, a couple of times, really once, it was a group of Syrian forces who were going out looking for rebels, right, for death squads, I would say, and then they fell into an ambush and got, uh, got shot. Uh, so... The common thing here also is people dressed in black with black hoods. And um, a lot of this was going in French. So cagoule, cagoule is the French word for a hood. And if you go back to France in the 1930s, to be a cagoulard, to be a hooded one, was to be a fascist. And I would actually propose that uh, we might want to coin a name for the Syrian destabilization. Right? It's, not, it's not the Cedars Revolution. It's not the the Orange Revolution of Kiev or the Roses Revolution of, uh, of uh, Tiflis, Georgia. It's not the White Revolution of Moscow that we're seeing. Let's call this the Kagul, the Kagulad Revolution, uh, with that fascist overtone, because I think it's, it's accurate. The, the, the main group that seems to be fomenting the revolution or the destabilization, better yet, is the Muslim Brotherhood. And the, the, the dynamic of the Muslim Brotherhood is very simple. They are paid by Saudi Arabia. That's who they are. So when you say Muslim Brotherhood, you're talking about the Saudi party, not the Iranians. They're against the Iranians, needless to say, and not the, what I would call the neo-Nasserists, right, of, of Libya, who are now gone, 
of Algeria who are hanging on and and of uh, of, of Syria, but rather uh, they're the Muslim Brotherhood. They represent the most reactionary monarchies, right? Remember Saudi Arabia, Qatar, the United Arab Emirates, Kuwait, or Oman, the rest of them. These are the most reactionary governments in the world. These are essentially absolute monarchies. They are relics of feudal barbarism. Uh, these are places where women have no rights, but that's not surprising because nobody has any rights. And Saudi Arabia is, is the, the center of this entire thing. So what we're seeing, and this, this also goes for the Morocco monarchy and for the Jordanian one, that the, the entire U.S. policy comes down to destroy the progressive regimes, because they are progressive, and exalt the power of these reactionary feudal monarchies. Did you uh, witness any demonstrations against Assad? No, I didn't. And that's what we, we were looking for those, right? We were told, look, look in, uh, Damascus has fountains. Uh, so look in the fountains of Damascus, and if it's colored with some kind of dye, some color or other, then that means that the Muslim Brotherhood was there. We looked for that. We couldn't find it. Rather, here's, here's what we did. Uh, on the morning of the 20th of November, I was sitting in this, this really beautiful hotel in the old city of Damascus. And again, this is the oldest place on earth, <laughs> at least according to the, to the locals. So we turn on the BBC. I'm there with my French colleague, Mark George of Media Libre. We turn on the BBC in the morning, and it says, a rocket-propelled grenade has struck the facade, the front of the Ba'ath Party headquarters in Damascus, and this is being widely interpreted as the beginning of civil war in Syria. So we said, well, if a civil war is going to start, we better go and see it, shouldn't we? So we get the staff of the hotel, not the secret police, just the staff of the hotel, to tell us what's the address of the, of the uh, Ba'ath Party headquarters. We get them to write that on a piece of paper so we can show it to a taxi driver. They call us the taxi, we go outside, we get in the taxi, we drive them, just the two of us, nobody else, no, no minders, to the Ba'ath Party headquarters. We get off in front of the Ba'ath Party headquarters. Is there the mark of a rocket-propelled grenade? We look, we look, we look. Then we see a guy is sweeping up. He's sweeping up some broken glass, and there are two tiles that are broken, uh, like tiles about the size of a large bathroom tile that had been part of the facade. So something had occurred, uh, but not, not, a, not a bomb. I mean, certainly not a rocket-propelled grenade. I mean, I was thinking, you know, it's somewhere between a cherry bomb and ash can and uh, I don't know what, you know, maybe some combination of those. Uh, there was a portrait of, of uh, President Assad. The, the glass was broken. Uh, and you could see there had been some damage to the plaster, and they had already they had already fixed that. So I, I had some pictures. You can you can judge for yourself. So this was it, um, minimal. So we went inside. We talked to some of them. Um, they gave us coffee, and then they said, "By the way, since you're here, why don't you go over here? And uh, there's a big demonstration going on." So naturally, we said, "Fine, let's go see it." This is the square. This is an interesting story in itself. There was once upon a time a railroad that went from Damascus down to Mecca in Saudi Arabia. It also had a branch that went over to Haifa in what is today Israel. This is the one, if you've seen the Lawrence of Arabia movie, this is the railroad that Lawrence of Arabia partially destroyed. The part in Saudi Arabia he destroyed. He also destroyed parts further north. But part of this railroad is still going. 
it's, a, it's used for commuter purposes and, and, and so forth, built by German engineers. So we go then to the square, which has the, the, uh, the railroad uh, building, right, that was the administration building for this, for this railroad. And there are, I don't know, 50,000, 75,000. It's really very hard to say. It was a large, large demonstration. And uh, pushing forward, right, in this crowd, were eventually invited to go up on the balcony. And they say, here's this French guy, here's me. They say, why don't you say a few words of greeting to the crowd? So, of course, right, let's, let's bring greetings from the anti-imperialist, anti-NATO forces of the West, the United States and France, pretty good cross-section, and say hello. So I got up there. You can see this on the Internet. I say things like, uh, you know, long live free Syria, long live beautiful Damascus, um, no Obama, no Sarkozy, no NATO, no war, um, and, and a few other things of, of this type, too. You can, you can take a look. Um, and then Mark George gave his, uh, his uh, remarks, which were pretty much along the same line. So, um, well, that was, was, was a huge, that was a huge rally, wasn't it? Yes, I guess it was. It was it was big. And again, I I'm in 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 a difficulty when it comes to estimating the exact size. You can take a look. Take a look at this at this uh tape which is it's on toply.net or you can just uh you can find it. Right? It's 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 on the internet. Again, go to my website toply.net. There there you can also see other other summaries of of the trip that I've taken. So we we looked uh, and we were driving around. Again, we were driving back and forth from Kara to Damascus, from Kara to Homs, from Homs to Banias, we got a pretty good cross-section. And you would hear at certain points in particular, they would say uh, it's better to avoid certain neighborhoods in Homs right now because there's activity going on. And I take it that means not political demonstrations, really. It's, it's hard to find people who want to come out because the death squads are going to shoot you. Again, it's not the Syrian army that's going to shoot you. It's the death squads because that then gives... Al Jazeera that evening, the chance to say 10 were killed automatically for them, that means killed by the Syrian army. And let me just, let me just try to point this out. What you think you know about this, you do not know. When you look at Al Jazeera or France 24 or CNN or any of these, they show you film clips. They don't tell you what they are. They'll often say, we can't confirm this. Well, they, that's right. They cannot confirm what they show. They report it anyway. That's called journalism. But I saw the one uh, just a couple of days ago when, when the, the, um, the claim was made that 200,000 people demonstrated in Homs. I said, well, that's not the Homs I know, or that's not the Homs I saw. When you look carefully at the, at the film, it shows you a shirt sleeve crowd. In other words, I take it this is a demonstration that might have occurred in April or May, back before the shooting got you know, as heavy as it is now. And therefore, what they're showing you is recycled older clips. Now, every, everybody now knows that Fox News put up a film of Greece and said that was going on in Russia. What you see for Syria are things that have gone on in Egypt. They've gone on in uh, Libya or you know, all, any, any place in the world is fine. So they simply recycle that. I'm speaking with economic historian and author Webster Tarpley. Today's show, NATO's Assault on Syria. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. In terms of the details of what's going on, originally, the Western coverage was based on 
the gay girl in Damascus blog. And this was allegedly a woman living in Damascus and reporting about the terrible oppression of the gay and lesbian community in Damascus by the evil Assad regime. Well, it turned out to be a fraud that it was written by an imposter. Maybe you followed this. It was written by an American academic, quackademic, operating out of Scotland. And the interesting thing was he did not have the the background in the Arab world, but his wife did. And his wife was an employee of the American Friends Service Committee. And I must admit, must remark, that the American Friends Service Committee has a series of accusations against them of being a CIA front going back to the Cold War, right? They were notorious for this. I can't judge, you know, what the story is, but this group has been under suspicion for a long time. So the entire coverage of BBC, New York Times, and all the rest for quite a number of weeks was based on the gay girl in Damascus blog, which was then a complete fraud. Now, more recently, it turns out to be the Syrian Observatory for Human Rights operating out of London. And I can only say that the Syrian Observatory for Human Rights deals in totally unsubstantiated inflammatory reports. My personal impression is that they are singing from the CIA songbook. They are essentially reciting a CIA script. Uh, who knows where their reports come from, right? Maybe they come from, you know, from uh, bloggers or uh, cyber trolls operating out of Langley, Virginia. Uh, anyway, when you, when you look at a newspaper and it says 25 people killed in Syria today, activists say, the activists who say that are the Syrian Observatory for Human Rights based in London. Now, the, the main guy involved here is a guy called Rami Abdul Rahman. Uh, who is, I would like to know, who is this Rami Abdul Rahman? I've seen reports on the Internet that he's somehow connected to Rifat Assad. Rifat Assad is the disgruntled, renegade, younger brother of the elder President Assad, the now deceased uh, Hafez Assad. This is his younger brother, who apparently wanted the succession for himself, didn't get it, and is now uh, disgruntled and, and an enemy. That's one account of where the Syrian observatory comes from. But now just today... I have seen a kind of a bidding war that has broken out. Uh, if we look at this story that the Arab League is continuing to press Syria to let in observers, we find that the, uh, the observatory, the Syrian Observatory for Human Rights says, security forces fatally shot at least 20 people in Homs, the restive province of Homs, which has been the scene of clashes, but now there's a bidding war, apparently, between the Syrian Observatory for Human Rights and the local coordination committees. This is another part of this splintered, split opposition. They say 34 people were killed, including eight army defectors. So now there's a bidding war between which one of these groups can offer the most uh, inflated death count, body count, based on completely unsubstantiated reports. So I submit anybody who believes any of this is a fool. This is, this is a kitchen of lies that has been set up and funded by the foundations and by Western intelligence agencies. And on the basis of this, uh, the, here's, the, here's the danger. Uh, when I went to Banyas on the way, we passed through the city of Tartus, 
And Tartarus is not just anything. This is a port on the Mediterranean, just north of the Lebanon border. This is now the base of the Russian Mediterranean fleet. And uh, during the time I was in uh, Beirut, I had a meeting with General Michel Aoun, who is the, the most important leader of the Maronite Christian community. He takes about, I guess, two-thirds to three-quarters of the Maronite Christians of Lebanon support him. He is now in an alliance with Hezbollah for the defense of his country against uh, foreign interference of any kind. This is a guy who has stood up to Syria in the past. He's a Lebanese patriot. He has many many of the qualities of General de Gaulle, I would say. So General Aoun commented on the morning of um, the Saturday before Thanksgiving that the Russian fleet was going to come to, to Tartus. And uh, the, this fleet is now on its way. Uh, some of them are there. Some of them are coming. We're talking about the aircraft carrier Admiral Kuznetsov. We're talking about the missile-launching heavy cruiser Moskva. We're talking about three to four nuclear submarines, anti-submarine warfare vessels, other support ships. That's a fleet. The U.S. has sent the aircraft carrier George H.W. Bush, if you can believe that. Uh, so we have all the ingredients for a naval confrontation in the eastern Mediterranean. So this comes in, a, in an atmosphere of increasing U.S.-Russian tension, mainly generated by the insane plan of the Obama regime to push these anti-ballistic missile uh, centers right up to the uh, Russian border, into the old Warsaw Pact area where the U.S. had pledged that no NATO troops would ever go. But, of course, they've long since gone there, right up to the borders of, of Russia. Uh, the day before I got to Damascus, or two days before, the Russians had sent the Patriarch of Moscow, the Orthodox Patriarch of Moscow, Cyril. So Patriarch Cyril had been there as an obvious, very high-level gesture of support for, uh, for Syria. And just back to that balcony, right, where I got to talk to the 75,000 Syrians, the, the speaker shortly after me uh, a Russian delegation arrived and began addressing the crowd in good Arabic, what I couldn't do, but they could, because some of them were from the southern part of the of the old Soviet Union, from places where Arabic is uh, not the main language, but it's commonly taught. You could see uh, signs out in the crowd, right, thank you, Russia, um, and so forth, because this is now the, the support that they're getting. And I believe this is it's significant in the sense that uh, you really have to think twice. If you bomb... Syria in the way they bombed Libya, uh, the Russian fleet is there. There are also reports that the Russian fleet has, has unloaded the S-300 surface-to-air missile, which is about as good as any air defense system in the world. So planes flying over Syria might have losses that they never encountered over, over Libya. So all sorts of reasons to back off from this and have a negotiated solution, which would have to start with the idea that the Syrian government has the inherent sovereign right to establish or reestablish law and order on its own territory against foreign death squads, because that, as far as I can see, is the main, the main thing going on. Now, you wanted to say a few words, I believe, about the uh, social safety net in Syria. Yes, right. I, I, and let me just say, I, I did talk, in addition to the one woman who was, uh, from again, from the upper middle class of Homs, who wanted, you know, I think, political rights that are, that are she's absolutely justified. She just has to be careful what she does, because she's got to realize that this imperialist force 
in the background is going to use any any demonstration for them becomes an excuse to propose bombing and civil war, and she doesn't she didn't want that. Uh, in the Christian quarter of Damascus, uh, remember, uh, Damascus is where Christianity starts uh, as an organized phenomenon, really. Uh, St. Paul's conversion to Christianity on the Damascus Road. Well, the point on the Damascus Road where St. Paul converted uh, is inside the modern city of uh, Damascus, although outside of the walls of the old city. And you can visit it. So not far from here is the Christian quarter, right? You've got your um, Franciscans are there, you've got, uh, you've, got, so you've got Roman Catholics, you've got Maronites, you've got others, and you've got an Irish bar. So in the Irish bar... We find a guy who uh, is a, he's a Syrian, and he's disgruntled. He said he wanted to go to work for the Syrian television. He couldn't, uh, he couldn't make ends meet, couldn't have enough to get married and start a family with the Syrian television, so he had to have two or three jobs. And he basically said his goal in life was to have a Mercedes-Benz. He didn't have one, and therefore he was against the Assad regime. So that, I think, shows, at least to some degree, some of the mentality of, a, of an urban you know, would be upper middle class that, you know, they're, they're not going to be happy until they have a, uh, a Mercedes Benz. So I tried to straighten him out, you know, on, on, on values, let's say that this is, this is a uh, fine, fine ambition, but uh, it's not worth uh, World War Three, And that's ultimately what, what may be at stake. Now, let's look at the social safety net, because this is the Ba'ath Party. This is Arab socialism. And it has the following, I think, significant um, advantages. Uh, the first thing is the subsidized price of basic foodstuffs, in particular bread. You can buy a kilo, right, 2.2 pounds of very good bread for about 20 American cents. Um, and as the Grand Mufti of Damascus said, no child goes to bed, nobody, no, nobody of any kind goes to bed hungry in Syria because they have this subsidized bread price, but this is not all that's subsidized. Uh, medical care is free for all. Uh, I didn't ever get to see a civilian hospital. I did get to see the military hospital, and this was maybe not quite U.S. state-of-the-art, but it was a whole lot better than something I've seen in, say, Sudan at various times, right? especially southern Sudan, where where it's it's much more primitive. So I think this is a, it's a reasonable standard. I think it, it's it's not quite at the level of Southern Europe, but it, it, it's not that far away from, from the level of, uh, of something you might find in Rome or, or, uh, or someplace like this. So the health care is free. Education is free. And education is free means all levels of education is free. The uh, school uniform is free. The school bus transportation is free. The meal you get at the school is free. Everything pertaining to education is free. They also have uh, subsidies on the energy price, uh, that the price of energy, he said, one of the people I talked to said about five cents per kilowatt hour, meaning that the electric bill of a normal family is maybe $5 a month. Uh, the telephone service, basic telephone, not international calls, but basic in-country telephone is free. And the other one is that liability insurance is basically free. In other words, if you register a car uh, apart from you know, going on a murder spree with a car or something like this, the, the uh, automobile uh, insurance, right, liability insurance is, 
is free under normal circumstances. So if you put that together, what it shows is that for the uh, working people, sort of uh, working class, lower class, lower middle class, there's a significant support. The problem that you get is if you want to get up to the upper middle class lifestyle, then it becomes harder. Then you've got to have multiple uh, jobs. Let me also just say the um, the complaints, right? People who support the regime have criticisms of the regime. And the principal one is this, that there were advisors to Hafez Assad the Elder, who was, I think, you know, much, much more authoritarian than, than um, Bashar. There's been a big change, you know, now in the last 10 years. But under Hafez Assad, he had a group of, of advisors, and a lot of them have been able to hang on. So a friendly critique of the Syrian regime is that there are people around Bashar who are left over from the father. They consider themselves to be heroes of, of the Ba'ath uh, revolution, but many in the population consider them to be thieves, and they want them out. So that's, that's the, uh, the internal critique in a nutshell. This is, this is the land of toleration. It's really remarkable, very refreshing, really a discovery. I knew absolutely nothing about Syria, but I'm, uh, I'm sold. I've been speaking with Webster Tarpley. Today's show has been NATO's Assault on Syria. Webster Tarpley is an economic historian, author, and lecturer. He is author of Against Oligarchy, 9-11 Synthetic Terror, Made in the USA, and co-author of George Bush, The Unauthorized Biography. His latest books are Obama, The Postmodern Coup, The Making of a Manchurian Candidate, and Obama, The Unauthorized Biography. His prescient economic work, Surviving the Cataclysm, a study of the world financial crisis is now out in paperback. Visit his website at www.tarpley.net. That's T-A-R-P-L-E-Y dot N-E-T. Email him at tarpley at tarpley.net. Guns and Butter is produced and edited by Bonnie Faulkner and Yara Mako. To make comments or order copies of shows, email us at blfaulkner at yahoo.com. That's B-L-F-A-U-L-K-N-E-R at yahoo.com. Visit our website at www.gunsandbutter.org. That's G-U-N-S-A-N-D-B-U-T-T-E-R dot O-R-G. Hey, yo, these are some serious times that we live in, G. And our new world order is about to begin. You know what I'm saying? Now the question is, are you ready for the real revolution, which is the evolution of the mind? If you seek, then you shall find that we all come from the divine. You dig what I'm saying? Now if you take heed to the words of wisdom that are written on the walls of life, then universally we will stand and divide it we will fall because love conquers all. You understand what I'm saying? This is a call for all you sleeping souls. Wake up and take control of your own cipher and be on the lookout for the spirit sniper trying to steal your life. You know what I'm saying? Look what's inside yourself.